But let me just say a couple things about Valentine's Day. First of all, to those of you that are single, you've never been married or you're divorced or uh, you're widowed like I was for a period of time, I want you to know that we deeply, deeply believe that you are not second-class citizens, that you have not been benched by God. Now, you may at times in days like this feel that way, but the reality is that's a lie from the pit of hell. As a matter of fact, I, I, I want to share with you my, my favorite all-time Jonathan Edwards quote. This is really old. It goes back to 1733, but I love what he captures here for us, and I want you to think about it in the context of this day. Look at this. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness, the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Now, I've quoted that before. You've heard me say that. But the rest of this I haven't shared with you. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. On Valentine's Day, don't confuse the drop for the ocean. God is the ocean. One more thing. When we come to a day like this, it's, it, it's important to say that biblical love, the love talked about in the Bible, is so much deeper, it's so much more profound than mere Hallmark card uh, romantic love. Now, there's nothing wrong uh, with romantic love, uh, but you don't want the toddler running the house. Biblical love is dying to yourself, seeking the highest good of those around you, regardless of how they respond. And so you men that are married, the greatest gift you can give your wives is this self-sacrificing biblical love that seeks her highest good regardless, regardless of how she responds to you. Amen? And on days like this, we just need to differentiate between the two. Now, uh, let's go on. If you're visiting with us today, I want you to know that our practice on Sunday mornings is uh, to study the Bible. And we do that because we believe that the Bible contains words of life and hope. And I hope in our passage we're looking at this morning in this series in the New Testament book of Acts that you will see this illustrated in some uh, wonderful ways. So grab your Bible, turn on your Bible, grab a Bible in the rack in front of you if you didn't bring one, and turn to Acts chapter 11. It's page 1,103 or 4 or 5, something like that. Now Acts, this New Testament book, is about the earliest first century church. And our passage is a big deal because here for the first time, Christianity moves outside the confines of Israel and the first place it lands 
is a city, a major city, uh, the famous first century city of Antioch. And the church that will grow in Antioch will become over time arguably the most influential church in all of Christianity in the first century. Antioch as a city is 10 to 15 times larger than Jerusalem at this point in time. A city maybe of 500, half a million, 500,000, half a million people. Huge by first century standards. As a matter of fact, it was the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. So think of Chicago. I mean, Chicago is the third largest city in the United States. Uh, so what we have going on here is the Gospels coming to Chicago. A major metropolitan area. Now, nobody saw this coming. What I mean is nobody saw uh, the, the Christianity leaving the Jewish confines of Israel and then exploding on its first stop in a major, major influential, sophisticated city. And so up front, we've got to say what we discover right away is that God loves the city. God cares deeply about the city, the large urban, suburban, metropolitan areas, just like our area, like the Chicago area. And if you think uh, that, that Christianity is merely some ba uh, backwater, farm-raised, village-centric, uh, ancient band-aid for people who had nothing to do with their weekends, nothing could be further from the truth. The city is central to God's plan to reach the world, these metropolitan areas. And while it's counterintuitive, what we discover here is the gospel thrives in metropolitan areas in the city. So today, what I want to do is I want to look at five marks of what this metropolitan ministry in Antioch looked like, and then the one key that unlocked the door. So let's begin reading chapter 11 and verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution when Stephen had been murdered back in Acts chapter 7 traveled as far as Phoenicia. Now that's modern day Lebanon. Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch, here the city, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene a, was a region in North Africa, went to the city, went to Antioch, and began to speak to Greeks also, not merely Jews, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw evidence, the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord now that's the second time we're we're told a great number of people are coming to Christ apparently hundreds and thousands of people in the city are turning to Jesus it's a big deal then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he found him he brought him to Antioch so for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch 
During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Now look at the picture behind me. Look at this picture. This is a bust of the Roman emperor Claudius that Luke mentions. He reigned as the Roman emperor for 13 years from 41 AD to 54 AD, right before the infamous Roman emperor Nero. That Luke mentions Claudius demonstrates Luke knows we will have questions about the Bible, questions about his uh, book, that we'll be innately skeptical. I mean, the gospel exploding in the first city it comes to, Antioch? But what Luke is doing is he's tethering religious history to secular history to show he is not writing religious make-believe. He's telling the readers when this happened, and where it happened, so they can check it out. Now let's continue verse 29. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders. First time elders are mentioned in Acts by Barnabas and Saul. All right, now the healthy marks are uh, healthy marks of a metropolitan ministry. Mark number one is what we see here is aggressive evangelism by everyone. Now go back to the first paragraph, uh, the first paragraph we read. I want you to note three things. First of all, there's an incredible wave of conversions that take place in Antioch in the city among the Gentiles, some Jews. And the second thing I want you to note is not a single Christian's name is mentioned who was one of the evangelists. Not one. Ordinary, no-name Christians, some with nothing but the shirts on their back, fleeing the persecution, moving north, risking great discomfort, boldly ask people, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about the Messiah? you heard about Jesus Christ? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. And ordinary, no-name people are doing that all over the place, and we are told that God's hand was with them. And God opened the hearts of Jews and Gentiles. And here we have one of the uh, uh, great metropolitan revivals, awakenings in all of history. And it's ordinary people. Not a single name mentioned. Never, ever underestimate how God used the likes of you and me, regular people, uh, regular Janes, regular Joes, to accomplish extraordinary things. Look at this passage from Isaiah chapter 55. I love these two verses. They're just beautiful, and they illustrate this point. As the rain and the snow came down, or come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so it is my word that goes forth out of my mouth, and it will not return to me empty. But it will accomplish what I desire, and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. 
So it's not our power, it's God's power. It's the power of God's word. And great conversions, I mean fantastic conversions, awakenings, revivals, whatever you want to call it, is not necessarily a function of, of great personalities or even great gifts, but ordinary people with great confidence in the word of God. And I wonder if we understand that today. Because we live in such a celebrity culture. And there's not a single name mentioned. Now let me go on. There's a third thing I want you to see here. Now bear with me. We as Christians tend to talk about two ways to respond to God. One is to follow him and do his will. The other is to reject him and do whatever you want. One is heaven, the other, the other is hell. Now, while that's true, there are actually three ways that we see here to respond to God and two ways to reject God. One right way, two wrong ways. And if we want to really make the gospel clear to people, we need to differentiate between the two. So let me explain. You see, on the one hand, you can reject God by rejecting his word, by living however you want to, by worshiping whatever God you want to. That's the Gentiles here, right? But on the other hand, you can also reject God by trying to earn your own salvation by the quality of your life. You, you obey God's word, you're kind of rule-oriented, black and white, and, and you do that. Who is that? That's the Jews that are being evangelized here. And the tricky thing is it's this latter group, the Jews, the, the people that are moral and religious who look the most like they're trying to do God's will. And the Gentiles, well, not so much. I want you to see how Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, downtown New York, summarizes this. Look at his words. Consequently, there are not just two ways to respond to God, but three, irreligion, religion, and the gospel. Irreligion, uh, think the Gentiles is avoiding God as Lord and Savior by ignoring him altogether. Religion or moralism is avoiding God as Lord and Savior by developing a moral righteousness and then presenting it to God in an effort to show that he owes you. The gospel, however, has nothing to do with our developing a righteousness we give to God, so he owes us. It is God developing and giving us righteousness through Jesus Christ. The gospel differs from both religion and irreligion, from both moralism and relativism, and this runs throughout the Bible. Now, here's why this matters. If we're going to be effective in evangelism, reaching people that don't know Christ, like these believers in Antioch, we need to understand that there are three, not merely two, ways to respond to God. And we need to distinguish between those depending upon who we're talking to. So, for example, today, uh, you're sharing the gospel with somebody from a religious background, somebody who is moral. You need to clarify the difference between the gospel and moralism, the gospel and religion, the gospel and, and, and self-salvation. But if you're talking to somebody who's irreligious and doesn't want anything to do, uh, with religion, and that number is increasing rapidly in our culture, that you want to explain, well, the gospel isn't rules, the gospel isn't religion, the gospel isn't power, the gospel isn't politics. It's looking away from yourself to Jesus who gave his life that you might find life, 
the ultimate life and, and, and forgiveness because ultimately you can't have the things you want. You can't have ultimate meaning, purpose, a hope, uh, relationships and community uh, 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 apart from Christ. And the gospel, I say this, the gospel will not be clear unless we distinguish between the religious and the irreligious. And that is what precisely was taking place here in Antioch. Let me go on, Mark number two. We see here a deep hunger for biblical truth. Look at verse 26. It's just remarkable. These guys are brand new baby Christians. Yet they have such a huge appetite for God's word. They want God's word so badly that for a whole year they sat under Barnabas and Saul's teaching. Can you imagine? Now let me show you something. Look at this verse, familiar verse from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Now, this is Psalm 22. David wrote this, but as you know, Jesus quoted this psalm on the cross. Earlier in Jesus' earthly ministry, when Jesus was being hammered by Satan, tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus responded to each of Satan's assaults by quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. When Jesus is tortured, beaten, and told to, uh, commanded to carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem to the site of the crucifixion, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Here, in Jesus' greatest moment of agony, the greatest moment of agony in the entire universe, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22. He also quotes from Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And the point is that Jesus was so saturated with the word of God that it almost spontaneously came to mind. And it became this lifeline that he held on to to face his greatest assaults, his greatest challenges, his greatest rejection, his greatest pain, his greatest suffering, and his death. Jesus was saturated with the word. And so like Jesus and like these brand new believers in this metropolitan area, Uh, we give ourselves to learning God's word, to, to memorizing God's word, to, to meditating on God's word. It, it doesn't matter how busy we are. Uh, and not just for a year, but for our entire lives. Why? Because each and every one of us is continuously starved for transcendence. For ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose, ultimate beauty, we're starved for that. And what happens is in the press of life along the way, what do we do? Well, we settle for money and sex and pleasure, our jobs. But it's God's word that shatters those idols in our lives. These idols that seek to destroy us. 
Because it's God's word that reveals the wonder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's God's word that reveals the glory of God. So as these believers hungered for God's word, so must we. Mark number three, there's this amazing compassion for the needy for people in need, uh, despite uh, a geographical and ethnic barrier. Now, this is the last paragraph of chapter 11. But uh, let me uh, talk about that in terms of what's going on today. Uh, Today, a lot of people are turned off uh, towards the established church, towards bigger churches in North America uh, like ours because... um, Uh, what they say is, you know, churches like that just talk about money all the time. All they ever do is talk about money. You go there and all you you ever hear is money. Now, there's some legitimacy to that criticism. But money matters. And so healthy churches talk about money and raise money in order to distribute, give money to meet the needs of the world around us, and to the corners of our globe. And here in the last paragraph, that's what's going on. You've got this large church in a big city, brand new believers, and what are they doing? They're raising money to give it away, to famine relief. And let me just say parenthetically, we take this, we take this issue real, uh, real seriously at Wheaton Bible Church. I'm really sensitive to this, conscious of this. And I just want you to know in the last seven years since we have relocated, we have spent more money on our local and global initiatives, external initiatives, than on operating this facility, than paying our required low payments and our capital projects combined. Combined. And last year, I mean, 2015... Um, as a matter of fact, we distributed $800,000 more for local and global external ministries than we did in 2008 before we relocated to this campus. And I want you to know, speaking for our leadership, by God's grace, our desire is that that differential will only increase. Healthy churches, biblical churches like we see here, are deeply, deeply compassionate churches, cognizant of, committed to the needs of the world around us. Let me go on to the fourth mark. Uh, And this is the mark that really uh, separates uh, churches in metropolitan areas from churches in more rural areas. And there is a joyful multiculturalism going down here. A joyful multiculturalism. Uh, In the last sentence of verse 26, uh, look at that. We're told that it was in Antioch that the disciples are first called Christians. Now, a a, a criticism of religion is that, and this is religion in general, is that religion is always just a function of your background. So you show me your race or your culture, your ethnicity, you show me your family, and I'll show you your religion. But here in Acts chapter 11, for the first time in history, people cross ethnic and racial boundaries, walls, if you will, to come together and worship together. 
This has never happened before like this. Ethnicity, culture, race laid aside. Because something is going on here that was much deeper, much more profound than race and ethnicity, even than family. So as people see this, they've got to come up with a different name uh, 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 for, for this. And they call these people Christians. And they tether it to a person, Jesus Christ, because they can't tether it to a race or a culture or an ethnicity. In other words, these early Christians were way ahead of their time. And this is precisely why the gospel uh, spread like wildfire in metropolitan areas. It's not an ethnic race thing. As a matter of fact, go to the first verse of chapter 13. Let me show you something real quickly here. Uh, the leaders, some leaders are mentioned. Barnabas, who's mentioned, was a Jewish Levite from the island of Cyprus. Uh, Simeon, called Niger, was likely a black African. Uh, Lucius was probably an Arab. Manaean was an aristocrat raised in the royal court. And these were the men among the leaders in the church in Antioch, making Antioch the first multicultural church in history. Mark number five. Now here I'm going to slow down and unpack this a little more because we're going to go back and we're going to look at Barnabas. Because what we see in Barnabas is this incredible ministry of continuous, continuous encouragement. And we see this in verses 23 and 24. Uh, but this is not the first time we're introduced to Barnabas. We're introduced to Barnabas in Acts way back in chapter 4 where we discover that Barnabas' real name was Joseph and this Barnabas was a nickname. It means son of encouragement. And it was a nickname because Barnabas was just such a crazy encourager. Now other people have pointed out something that's really cool here. Now, uh, the verb... Um, encouraged here is a compound word in the Greek. I don't give you Greek words very often, but I'm going to give you this one. It's the Greek word parakaleo. Two words in one. The prefix para means to come alongside. So today we have paramedics and paralegals. They come alongside. It's from the Greek prefix. Uh, the, the, the second word, kaleo, means to call, uh, to call out, to speak verbally. So an encourager, to encourage, uh, like Barnabas, an encourager is a person who stands in someone's shoes, comes alongside, and speaks into someone's life. Stands in someone's shoes, speaks into someone's life. In other words, biblical encouragement, the kind of encouraging that's taken place here in Acts chapter 11, isn't merely someone who holds somebody's hand and just continually affirms them, oh, you're just wonderful. Uh, nor is it someone who's always uh, 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 telling other people what to do or where to get off and what they've done wrong and what they're missing because they're impatient and critical. Now, now think about the context here. 
dramatic evangelism. Hundreds, 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 thousands of people have come to Christ. Con uh, conversions taken place. A and teaching with Barnabas and, and Paul is about to happen for a whole year. But sandwiched in between. Holding this exploding Gentile church together is a man who has the gift of coming alongside people and speaking truth into their lives. And this is exactly what these new believers needed to grow. It's what we all need to grow. We need people around us who are not so cowardly that all they do is affirm us, telling us what we want to hear. I mean, that just produces a, a, a sense of pride, spiritual blindness. Uh, nor do we need people who are so insensitive, so impatient, so harsh, that they speak too quickly, too rashly. You're not listening to me, we say to people like that. Because that just produces discouragement and insecurity. But Barnabas, our man, uh, Parakaleo, he had this incredible uh, mix of truth and love. And the Bible calls that encouragement, sometimes exhortation. And that's the soil, now hear me, that's the soil that healthy Christians, healthy churches, healthy families grow in. It's both. I come alongside and I speak truth into your life. Now why? Why was this so necessary? Why was this such a big deal? Because we're all deeply insecure. Insecure. And even those of us who act the most self-assured you know, know that there is deep insecurity under their hoods. That's why we all spin. That's why we all uh, justify. Uh, that's why we all rationalize and twist and, and deny. That's uh, why we say, man, if you had my day, if you'd experienced my stress, you know you, why I'm you, uh, responding the way I am. I mean, if you were raised in my home and you had my father, you'd be just like me. It's always somebody else's fault. <laughs> always. <laughs> so when uh, someone comes to you uh, with truth but no love, uh, man, um, you, you tune them out, you dismiss them, you, you run from them, and that's your defense mechanism. But if they come to you uh, with love and love and love and, and gentleness and softness, but there's never any truth, there's never any challenge, uh, there's never any wisdom, then what happens is uh, you will become self-absorbed and uh, narcissistic. And there's all sorts of research today that's telling us that's exactly what's happening to our children here in the United States. This is a big deal here. And, and the reason this kind of encouragement, this mix of truth and love is so necessary is because that the sin that most distorts our lives is the sin in our lives that we're the least aware of. And for each of us, that sin is different. 
We just don't see it. And we need people to come alongside us and speak truth into our lives about it. Otherwise, we just live in denial. Man, and so there's no love. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways I can talk about this. If there's no love, um, we don't hear. If there's no truth, we don't see. And ultimately, we don't grow. And the point I want to make is there is no, there is no long-term spiritual growth the kind that produces this sense of transcendence in your life without both. And not surprisingly, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, we are told twice that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Both. And what happens in Acts chapter 11, the first time the Gospel goes to a city, Barnabas shows up, and people start growing. And they go deep, and they go wide, and they go high. All right, those are the five. But let me be honest. <laughs> I'm, when, it, when it comes to these, uh, 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 evangelism, uh, truth, compassion, multiculturalism, uh, we're not equal to that. I'm not, you're not. And when it comes to this last one, this encouragement mix, man, this is impossible for us to find that balance. So what's the key that unlocks the door? We'll look at verse 26, 24 rather, verse 24. Here we are told something critical about Barnabas. We are told he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And if you go back, travel back a little uh, to Jesus' last hours with the disciples before he was crucified, and what Jesus says in what's called the upper room discourse recorded in John 13 through John 17, you will discover Jesus aware that he's about to be crucified, preparing the disciples, not just affirming them and saying, man, you guys have been just great. Let's have a group hug. Everything's going to be easy. You know, climb every mountain, cross every stream, dig deep. You can do it. Jesus doesn't say that to the disciples, nor does he condemn them. Uh, nor does he say to him, I can't believe what unbelieving idiots you are. You know, I, I can't believe that God assigned that you to me. Instead, what Jesus says is, I'm going to send you another helper. A counselor. An advocate. The Holy Spirit. Uh, look at these words in John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking, and he says to the disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Okay, let's keep that up there for a, a, a moment. What I want you to know is the word translated advocate is the noun form of the same word used as a verb translated encouraged to describe Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. Two different forms, one word, parakaleo. 
In other words, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I am sending you someone who will come alongside you and speak truth into your life. It's the Holy Spirit. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. But note here, note the word before advocate. It's the word another. So the question is, who's the first advocate? And the answer to that is Jesus himself. I don't have time to develop this, but this is 1 John 2, 1. Uh, It's Jesus who, after his death and resurrection and accession, is now standing before God as a defense attorney, an advocate for us, saying, God, don't hold their sin against them. Look what I've done. I died in their place uh, for their sins. And God the Father sees because of the work of Jesus Christ. Those of us who have believed as perfect righteous, perfectly righteous, I should say, and forgiven because of the work of Christ. Christ is the first advocate. He's the ultimate defense attorney. And here he says the Holy Spirit is the second. This is so cool because what it means is that as the first advocate, Jesus speaks to God for you, Jesus speaking to God for you, the Holy Spirit, the second advocate, speaks to you about Jesus. Why are you so uptight? Why are you so hard? Why are you, are you so angry? Uh, you need to take your eyes off yourself. You need to see Jesus. I mean, look at his pain, his rejection, his suffering. Look at the crucifixion. Look what he did for you. Look how much he, he, he loves you. Tether your identity, not to your circumstances, but to Jesus. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to point us to Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit does that and we respond to that, we can face anything. All right, now I'm going to land this. The key to Antioch was Barnabas. But the key to Barnabas was the Holy Spirit. And his ministry of truth and and love. So the key to ministry that unlocks the door that enables us to do evangelism and and give ourselves the truth and to be compassionate is this ministry of the Holy Spirit that indwells us, that comes alongside us and continually and forever points us to Jesus. And to the extent we take our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and, and we see Jesus, we'll give ourselves to evangelism, we'll give ourselves to compassion. And by the way, that's what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, um, who knows, maybe Antioch all over again. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you um, because... We can't do this on our own. And we come to you in the name of our first advocate, Jesus Christ, and our second, the Spirit. 
And we ask that you would work in our lives. That we might be all you want us to be. Would you do this? That you might be honored. That you might be glorified. That we might see you. And I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.